The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 328 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician retired from practice. Our topic today is what family caregivers face in the years beyond severe brain injury. Severe severe brain injuries occur mostly in the age range teenager to early 30s, occur mostly in road accidents, sports injuries and military service, result in effects that after the injury become increasingly evident as time passes and the person ages. Severe brain injuries harm mental functions like remembering things, speaking and understanding other people who are speaking, and things like reasoning, problem solving and decision making. Severe brain injuries diminish quality of life in various ways by harming mobility, undermining independence by interrupting lives, careers and prospects, by interfering with changes of life and family relationships, and sometimes, often maybe requiring repeated hospitalizations. Severe brain injuries have effects which are complicated by illnesses that persons were already living with, you know, like diabetes, for example, or that develop as they age. Um, The effects may lead to depression, and the effects, though serious, and there's no question about the the severity of them, they do create challenges which the person can overcome so that the person can contribute to the lives of others and have a quality of life um, that is good, given everything that affects them. Now, severe brain injuries have consequences which are physically, psychologically, and too often financially exhausting for persons with the injuries and for their family caregivers, which is why what family caregivers face in the years beyond severe brain injury is so important. To discuss it, our guest is Dr. Rolf Gaynor. Now, Rolf is the Vice President of of Rehabilitation Institutes of America, He's also the founder and chief executive officer of the Neurologic Rehabilitation Institute of Ontario, Canada. He serves as the chief executive officer at Brookhaven Hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's been involved in the design and operation of brain injury rehabilitation and treatment programs since 1978. An example is Community Neuro Rehab. He has a PhD in clinical psychology 
is diplom Diplomate ABDA and holds the MED, Master of Education in Counseling Psychology. He's published numerous articles on brain injury, rehabilitation, and mental health topics. He's presented at many, many national and international conferences. And he's involved currently in three outcome research projects related to social role return and lifespan considerations for individuals with traumatic brain injury. So welcome to the show, Rolf. Well, thank you, Gordon. I'm excited. Great. Now... Please tell us a little bit more about your career and also any experience you have with family caregiving. Rolf? Oh, I'd be pleased to. Thank you very much. Um, I've been involved in working with people with brain injuries uh, since the mid-1970s, and I opened my first a program in a non-medical setting for individuals with severe brain injury in 1978. As I opened that program, I became acutely aware that the person with a brain injury was very much part of a larger system outside of them, namely their family, and that those family members became the extended consumers and were very often not only legally but ethically and morally the decision makers uh, for the individual in terms of their care going forward. So I really began to recognize the role and significance of family members as this event occurred. And as time went on, in terms of my own career, as life went on for them as caregivers living with a person with a severe brain injury. Right. Now, please tell us about your professional work, obviously, as it specifically relates to serious head injuries. Ralph? Sure. Be pleased to. Well, my professional interests uh, always have been with people who have had very difficult problems. Um, before I worked in brain injury, I was involved with people with a variety of behavioral problems, psychiatric disorders. I uh, uh, ran a, a forensic clinic for a while, which certainly put me in touch with individuals with brain injuries who got in trouble in the community. And when I moved towards the area of brain injury, it, it really um, was fascinating uh, in terms of the issues that these uh, individuals faced uh, in terms of their life, the challenges, much as you described, uh, in the different domains of their lives that started to occur after their injury. And the more I got into it, the more I realized that this is really a lifelong problem. It's not something that, that simply uh, goes away. So over the course of my career, I've been very, very fortunate in being able to uh, develop a number of programs, probably about 30 programs between the United States and Canada to uh, perform rehabilitation for people with severe brain injuries in a number of settings. I've opened hospital programs, uh, community-based programs, outreach programs. Uh, we now have um, a lifespan program for individuals that um, need services that their families cannot provide for a variety of reasons. And this has really been just a fascinating opportunity for me to work with people throughout their lives and to become very um, close to their issues and their, their, their family's issues over the course of time. Rolf, just a clarification question. I've used the term, the phrase, serious head injuries. You're speaking of brain injuries. Um, I recognize that the brain is inside the head, but please clarify 
the distinction between those two terms, terminologies that we're using. Ralph, please. Sure. No, I'd be, I'd be pleased to do that. Uh, I use the term uh, brain injury as related to specific injury that occurs to the brain that may or may not involve a opening of the skull, um, maybe a closed head injury. In fact, probably most of the cases that we see are non-penetrating or closed uh, brain injuries. As you know, brain injuries are graded by severity. Um, there's a term that um, we use called mild brain injury, which is a term that I think is quite a bit of a misnomer, but it involves about 80% of the people who have brain injuries in the United States, Canada, and uh, most of the world. And then there are moderate brain injuries, the indication of uh, more impaired function, and then the group that we're here to talk about today, severe brain injuries, are approximately uh, 10% of all the brain injuries that, that occur. We're talking about an incident rate of about one every 20 seconds in the United States. Wow. <laughs> That's a bit uh, of a wow, isn't it? <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> so I think the distinction is just how we're focusing in on, on the brain and its variety of relationships with functional areas in our lives uh, when right. we use the term brain injury. Right. Very, thanks. That's a good clarification for us. Now, please highlight for us the challenges that begin when, as you say, um, the, these are your words, the person with the serious head injury miraculously survives the first night after the industry. In, injury, I'm sorry. Highlight those challenges for us, please, Rolf. Well, we call that, or I call that the chain of miracles. I think, you know, the family and loved ones are in this vigil in the, uh, outside the emergency room, in a waiting room somewhere, and there are certain questions that go through their mind, beginning with, will they live through the night? Will they open their eyes? Will they walk? Will they talk? Will they go home? Will they go back to being the person that we know? Will they go back to work? So these are the questions that they go through in that course of that first evening, and none of those questions get answered. In fact, the person's survival begins this uh, chain of miracles, and if they live, then they believe that the rest of what they're looking for will come true, and it will happen. And I think that's just a normal process of not wanting to recognize the severity of the problem, the nature of the issues. So the person may face neurosurgery. Uh, they may face an extended period of medical monitoring, such as uh, intracranial pressure, using an intracranial pressure device to measure the amount of fluid that is uh, collecting in the brain. Uh, there will be other physical injuries very often that require attention. They could be very severe injuries. Physicians will measure the person's ability to respond. They uh, use behavioral rating instruments like the Glasgow Coma Scale used commonly. Um, they're going to look at the person's ability to breathe. They may provide them with uh, external assistance in the form of a ventilator. So there are many things that occur for this individual that the family is part of that I think is a period of very heightened anxiety, and it begins the very slow process of, of recovery. And the, the issue of recovery is changing. When I first started out in the area of brain injury, the belief was that the period of recovery would last for 6 to 12 months, and then there would be no further recovery. 
I think since then, we've expanded way, way beyond that and started to realize that people can experience positive changes throughout their lifetime. The situation requires services, requires rehabilitation, requires care, and a lot of opportunities that become available. I think the question that families face throughout this process of what's next, what's going to happen after acute rehabilitation, when they go into um, you know, physical therapy and occupational therapy and speech therapies, uh, where the care shifts from neurologic medicine to uh, physiatric medicine, and there's now a physiatrist who's uh, the attending physician. They may go to a post-acute facility, which could be an outpatient facility, or if they require a higher level of care, perhaps a residential facility or even a skilled nursing facility. Eventually, they're going to go home. And that becomes, I think, a very critical point to looking at the challenges that the families face as they begin in probably a 12- to 24-month period face life after rehabilitation and settle in with um, identifying the residual problems, thinking about the resources that are needed, looking at the accommodations that they may need to make in their home in terms of uh, access, and learning this new role, which I think is very critical for caregivers. Uh, they may be an adult whose child has uh, been out of the home for years, and all of a sudden they're now a caregiver, providing a high level of physical care and attention uh, to a person who's an adult, a large person. Right. Now, we are going to be talking about those challenges as they, as you've highlighted them and the way in which they present themselves. Um, but right at this moment, uh, we're going to take the break because it's that time. So we'll do that now. And then we're going to come back. So this is Dr. Gordon Atherley. And my guest is Dr. Rolf Gaynor. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We will be back. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join Gary Ray with his co-host Linda Crater as they show what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Very rarely does our news media spotlight some of the good things that are happening in our world. For more of these good stories and the people that are creating them, tune in to Bread for the Journey with Mariana Cacciatore. Whether these good acts stem from personal tragedy or just a desire to help out and make this a better world in which to live, you'll find inspiration in every week's program. Connect with those that are doing something great for a change. Listen for Bread for the Journey, Saturdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. 
Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Ralph Gaynor. Our topic is what family caregivers face in the years beyond severe brain injury. Now, Ralph, let's discuss in more detail those challenges that you've just highlighted in the previous segment that begin on the morning after the survival of the person with the serious head or brain injury. So first of all, first question to you, what are the most challenging of the challenges to physical health and well-being and social contact, and how do these changes and challenges change as the person ages? That's a great question. Um, What I would like to uh, put forward is that brain injury is a chronic disease, and Dr. Brent Mazel in Texas began to conceptualize this a number of years ago, and it's really moved the... uh, rehabilitation professions quite a bit to see it in this context. The World Health Organization in 2002 defined chronic disease as an event which leaves permanent or residual set of effects, leaves a disability, it's caused by a non-reversible pathological alteration, requires special training and support, and requires a long period of supervision, observation, and care. And we think about what the World Health Organization was describing as a chronic disease, we really see what is brain injury over the course of a person's lifetime. It also moves us away from the understanding or the belief that brain injury is a sickness that's going to get better, like a broken arm or a broken leg or a case of pneumonia person is going to have ongoing problems. So if we can take that to be the definition, what does that mean as it relates to brain injury? And many of these things you described in your introduction to the show in terms of a uh, person having altered or diminished functional capacities. So this could be in the form of uh, walking or arm movement or strength. Um, their physical care requirements may go up. They may have problems with uh, bowel and bladder control, balance. There may be psychological and behavioral care needs. Based on the area of the brain that's injured, uh, we can expect that there'd be certain changes that would occur to the person's uh, behavior or their mood state. They may require daily living supports, activities that uh, we take for granted, like being able to uh, shower by ourselves, make breakfast get ourselves dressed. Uh, they may require specialized equipment. They may need devices that increase their ability to access the environment, like a wheelchair or a walker. 
Or in some cases, they may need something as sophisticated as a voice synthesizer or a specialized computer that allows them to communicate with other people through other means. Right now, technology is opening up tremendous opportunities. Uh, They are going to require resources that have specific knowledge about brain injury, so it's not something that can be treated without that knowledge. And then importantly, there's going to be a loss of independence that's going to affect not only the person, but the caregivers around them. I think there's a crucial question that comes up for the individual, and I believe the same question comes up for the caregivers, which is, where did my life go? And for both individuals, there's a fair grieving process that goes on, which is part of the challenge around the physical issues, around the person's well-being. We'll get to, I guess, the mental health issues later, but Mm -hmm. that grieving is part of a process that goes on for quite a while. And then there's a looking for new direction in life. How are they going to meet these challenges? How will the challenges affect other people? How will care be delivered? Certainly a host of things that begin to occur at that point in time. Now, let's go to the mental health, which you mentioned. So it's the same question. What are the most challenging of the challenges to mental health and the associated well-being and social contact and things like that? And how do those uh, challenges change as the person ages? Ralph? Yes. You would uh, also refer to uh, health problems that the person may have. And I think in the uh, field, we're really becoming uh, more aware of some of the issues for example, neuroendocrine disorders that occur as a result or can recur as a result of a severe brain injury that might account for certain mood problems. Uh, but importantly, I think we want to spend a bit on health disparities or problems that occur that affect the person's health and well-being because of a diminished capacity to self-manage. It could be in the form of memory problems that uh, affects the person's ability to uh, remember to take their medication or to stay on a diet or to practice certain uh, health procedures. But those problems can cause other physical health problems that can become very significant for the person and can affect a lot of quality of life issues. The physical changes that we see are issues that relate to uh, weakness or motor control problems, sometimes a total loss of function in an area or major parts of the body. They could have problems with sight, vision, hearing, smell, taste, which could become very disruptive to them. Uh, Fatigue is very common. Sleep disorders are common, as are speech problems. So you have this tapestry that's developed of physical health problems, uh, capacities, physical capacities, uh, cognitive problems, psychological problems, problems in everyday life that involve thinking or problem-solving, depression and apathy. I think the effect, the total effect of these various domains really can... um, negatively impact on the person's physical health, their well-being, and their social contact, and can cause a lot of uh, isolation. From a family perspective, I think one of the issues 
that I would like to highlight is the ability to relate to the person who's severely impaired. Commonly, we hear family members say it's not the same person because they're looking at characteristics of personality or expression that, that are gone. The person themselves may also see themselves as not the same. And I think for both sets, both the individual and their family, it may cause a lot of problems about who am I, what is going on, where do we all fit in here, and how do we go about our lives. You're making very clear that the family as well as the person are part, are part and parcel to uh, the progress, the changes, um, and the challenges. Now, I want to just go back a little bit more to the mental health questions. Um, to ask you a question like this, given all these challenges, do people with um, brain, severe brain injuries also go into things like depression? Do they get depressed? Do they lose hope? Please talk about that challenge. Yes, be pleased to. Uh, the studies around depression indicate a very, very high frequency of people with depression that begins at the time of injury and can last for a long time. Uh, the range can be as high as 60% of people with severe brain injuries being depressed or suffering from depression at various points. So the studies that uh, I've seen that are conducted internationally, as well as studies that we're conducting at um, three organizations that I'm involved with, really have uh, agreed with um, the issues around depression and mood problems. Uh, that occur secondary to brain injury. And those problems may have some permanence. There's also s some aspect of depression that may be better categorized as apathy, which is biologically driven as a result of specific aspects of the injury, neurochemical changes that have occurred as a result of that, or some individuals believe that neuroendocrine problems uh, can account for depression or apathy at some point post-injury, creating further problems. The mental health issues affect the person's ability to return to their social role. All of us base our self-value or self-worth on what we do and the feedback we get from other people about our effectiveness in those roles. And those roles could be as a, a spouse or a significant other, as a worker, the jobs that we do, as a parent, as a friend, as a neighbor, as a member of the community or as a club member, any number of social roles that we occupy. And I believe on the basis of uh, the work that some of the work I do, some of the research, is that the social role component, when we look at the long-term problems, is a very, very significant part of what causes mental health issues and what causes the person to become dissatisfied with their life. If we ha have a second, I'd like to reference a study that was done by Dawson and Chipman uh, in Canada in 1994 involving a large number of people who had moderate to severe brain injuries who were living in the community in both urban or rural environments. So they did an interesting sample of individuals. Ninety percent of the people they sampled reported uh, dissatisfaction with their lives, the quality of their lives. About 60% were not working. 60% required physical assistance. 
There was also a large number of people reporting limited socialization. 47% said they weren't talking on the telephone. And 27% were not socializing at home. So I'm just summarizing the study quickly. But when we think about it, how many of us use the telephone every day to communicate? Half the individuals in the Dawson and Chipman study were not using the telephone for basic communication. In some ways, this may be part of what creates a perfect storm for an individual that breeds mental health problems and some long-term issues. They have high care needs, high physical dependency, they have depression, they're isolated, and they're lonely. So there are factors outside of the person as well as those that belong to the person and their family that create this set of ingredients that could really have a significant effect. Right. Now, once again, it's time for the break, but just to say quickly back to you, that um, summary that you've just given us adds up to an ongoing challenge for family caregivers. And one of the things we're going to talk about in the next segment is the kind of solutions, or if that's the right word, the kind of approaches to these challenges. So let's take the break now and then come back to talk more. This is Dr. Gordon Asley, and my guest is Dr. Rolf Gaynor. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We will be back. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile, Radio to Thrive By. Ooh, are you happy with just accepting and passing along what the media, politicians, and government are feeding you? Or are you positively sick of it? It's time to get the real facts and form your own decisions. It's time to awaken the sleeper within you. Each week, host Dr. Nick Castellano will uncover various viewpoints and topics designed to inform and present the truth. Today's masses are manipulated by media coverage, and we will not become sheeple. Tune in to Awaken the Sleeper, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as the show is often hosted by national experts in the fields of leadership, teamwork, management, corporate responsibility, accounting, governance, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be more trustworthy. Your hosts are trusted professionals with years of experience in applying strategies with today's leading organizations. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, 
please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Rolf Gaynor. Our topic is what family caregivers face in the years beyond severe brain injury. Now, Rolf, let's talk about overcoming the challenges to persons living and aging with serious head injuries and overcoming the challenges to their family caregivers. Now, first question is, in what way can the challenges to the physical health and all the things associated with physical health um, be um, overcome by persons with serious head injuries? In other words, what are the things that they can do for themselves uh, with help, obviously, that are going to overcome the challenges to their physical health? Excellent question, and I'm happy to be able to shift to a more positive and uh, forward-thinking set of answers. person's going to be facing challenges, as we know. We've been talking about that for the last few minutes. One of the keys is finding the right help, the right level of expertise that can help the person with their challenges. Brain injury is unique from many other disabilities uh, because of its complexity and because of the level of sophistication of the brain and its uh, relationship to uh, the body and behavior and feelings. So I think key to uh, helping a person to deal with health problems and helping the family is to find an appropriate set of medical specialists, people who understand brain injury, who have specialization in it, and have experience in working with the person at the level of severity of the problems they have and the level of recovery that they're at. So what I'm talking about is services across the life spectrum as opposed to the discharge from uh, rehabilitation being the end-all of of physical care and medical care. I believe that there's a real place for ongoing therapies for the individual both to maintain gains that are made in rehabilitation and to continue to give people the opportunity to reacquire skills that were lost in the injury. And I've seen in individuals that we've treated both at NRIO and uh, at Brookhaven Hospital that people can regain skills years and years post-injury. Sometimes that could be done with individuals who are really therapy extenders who are trained by an occupational therapist or a physiotherapist or speech and language therapist to carry a program forward and to provide a level of care. A family member could also learn to do those exercises and activities and provide a greater stimulation. We've learned that the more frequent treatment can occur and the greater intensity of treatment the greater the chances are of the person moving forward and making a recovery. Fitness is very important. Right. And just just to quickly come back to you, that recovery goes on and on and on in one sense, doesn't it? It's not something that ends after a few months. This is the recovery continues. That's part of your message, isn't it? Yes. The recovery can continue for years. Yeah. over time. And it may take a different course. It may be periods of plateau. It may not be a linear 
uh, path up. It may involve some problems that the person has in some areas. But I want to encourage uh, family members to seek the appropriate services and to find ways to provide those services, including taking on some of that responsibility themselves, as well as bringing people into the home who can provide those services who may not be the professional, but in a paraprofessional way can carry those exercises forward. Right. Now then. Yeah, I want to take. I, I'm sorry. The, there's the tyranny of time, Rolf. I know oh, you understand yeah. this, so forgive me for this. But right. let's move to the challenges to mental health. What What about the help for persons who are living and aging with serious brain injuries? How can they be helped in overcoming the mental health challenges, Rolf? Well, mental health problems aren't going to go away. Uh, if they occur, I think the family needs to expect that they're not going to clear on their own. And it may take a multi-pronged approach. It may involve medications. It may involve therapy. But the core, people need to stay the course in terms of pursuing appropriate treatment. They need to know that the uh, physician who's involved has experience with brain injury, understands which medications work, which medications don't work, can uh, follow the person closely. Certainly in a rural area, we may want to look for somebody who um, has access to telemedicine as a way of getting expertise to them. But I think the mental health issues are critical because they um, underlie so much that occurs around social role return, uh, participation, and physical health. They're inseparable. Other mental health issues and guidance I would offer is for everybody to stay active and involved, certainly through support groups like the Brain Injury Associations or the Brain Injury Alliances. If we can uh, help the person go back to school or take some specialized training to spark some interest that they have, uh, volunteering is a very important aspect, too. maybe hobbies or a new hobby or return to a hobby that they had that they hadn't been pursuing prior to their injury. Uh, maybe important for a person to uh, maintain their spiritual life, to feel that there's help available to them from that uh, domain. We also need to not expect that friends are going to come to the person, come to their home, but that the person is going to have to leave their home to socialize as much as possible. But I think there... There's some new opportunities that get created. Certainly the Internet is also a way that people can communicate. Um, We worked with a young woman some years ago who uh, was very active on the Internet because she felt that people didn't know she was disabled. One of her problems was her processing time when she typed on a keyboard. She was very, very slow, but she could carry on a full conversation with somebody over the Internet that she couldn't do face-to-face because of her speech hesitant disease. We also have seen a lot of success in the mental health area with people with brain injuries having an opportunity to give back, to help other people conquer aspects of their disabilities and move forward with their lives. That could be very fulfilling, to come out of the role of being a patient and become a helper. I recently did an interview with a woman who's... uh, well over 20 years post-injury, 
whose recovery experienced a real positive turning point when she began to help others through the support group activities that she was part of. She then went back to school, got a second baccalaureate degree in education, and then eventually went on and got a master's degree and now is a researcher using mindfulness to help people with brain injuries. So there are amazing things that could be done to help people once they avail themselves of certain opportunities that are out there. Right. Now, I'm going to ask you um, about the ways in which the challenges for family caregivers can be overcome, especially as the aging of the family member continues. So family challenges for family caregivers, overcoming those. Rolf? Well, there's enormous challenges for family caregivers. And you talked about some of them uh, in the introduction. If we look at the United States, 29% of the population is currently caring for somebody who's chronically ill or disabled. This is larger than just brain injury. So there are financial issues that are inherent in that. The estimated cost of that is, in the U.S., $75 billion a year in its equivalent if it was paid for. So we're looking at something that is onerous for individuals in terms of a challenge. As the family ages, they have to stay healthy. Because we know that the role of a caregiver can affect the person's health in any number of ways, both physical and mental. So the family members that are involved in the process of caring need to stay healthy. They need to keep themselves on track. They need to maintain other interests outside of the home. If caring for their loved one becomes their sole activity, they usually will have problems. They also need to continue to nurture their relationships with their spouse, with their children, and with their extended family, and not allow themselves to fall prey to isolation and loneliness. I think much, much like I talked about earlier, uh, maintain friendships outside the home where there's somebody who comes in and relieves them or they go out with their loved one. Take breaks, look at uh, respite care opportunities or home care that gives them an opportunity to leave the home and take care of things. Importantly, I think this is something that I've experienced most in the last 10 years of my career is planning for the future. That's an enormous burden that sits on family members of what's going to happen, but it's somewhat alleviated when they begin to make plans and move out of the what-if question. And I think the questions they need to ask themselves relate to creating supports to allow them to age in place in their home with their loved one who's also aging in place. They need to plan for both themselves and their loved one needing increased care if they want to stay in the home environment. Uh, that will require identifying what resources are available, both financial as well as service resources. Uh, they need to learn about what support programs exist for them. Financial support programs, uh, service supports, a variety of things that... Um, can help extend their ability to be an effective caregiver. Uh, they need to look at workable financial plans and deal with the what-ifs in those plans if they can. Um, they, too, need to maintain a healthy spiritual life, allow that to, to help them and be realistic about themselves and their loved one, what they can do and what they can't do. 
because in that may lie some of the traps that could cause them to have health problems. And the last point I would raise in that context is to know when they need help and not to be Superman or Superwoman, but to know when they're exhausted and when they need somebody to come in and give them a hand. And also, if I just add something that you said before, that sense that there is hope. It's hard going. Um, At times it seems enormously difficult, but you've made very clear that with all the devices, the help, the protections, the the way in which people can be encouraged, um, the way in which people can be supported, and the, the knowledge that the recovery, as you described it, uh, goes on, you say sometimes it goes into plateaus, but nevertheless it continues. Um, and let's say it continues over the course of the life of the, the person and the family caregivers. So I'm just repeating that back to you as a way of saying something you've stressed, which is very important, behind all of this is the idea of hanging on to hope and you've mentioned spirituality and that's one way of doing it now we're going to take the break at this particular moment because the time calls for it and we're going to come back and finish off what we would like to see done more so this is Dr. Gordon Adderley and my guest is Dr. Rolf Gaynor. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio and SharingTheBurden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune in to the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Rolf Gaynor. Our topic is what family caregivers face in the years beyond severe brain injury. Rolf, I want you to talk now about the things that you would like to do and to see done to help persons living and aging with the challenges of serious head injuries and done to help their family caregivers. So what more would you like to do for persons 
living and aging with the challenges of serious brain head injuries. Rolf? Well, I like questions like that that allow us to look to the future and to do some crystal ball gazing, if we call it that. Um, I'm going to begin with saying that the resources that I've seen are somewhat lacking in terms of what occurs for the individual throughout the recovery phase, throughout the rest of their lives, that the services are most concentrated on the initial end, initial aspect of the injury, when the person is in the medical world, when they're going through rehabilitation. But what we're seeing is that the stay in rehabilitation is much, much shorter than it's ever been. So people are leaving uh, medical care, as we call them, sicker and quicker, and they're going home with issues that need to continue to be addressed through rehabilitation. So if I had my way, I would bring more rehabilitation out into the community and also develop that outreach component to reach out into the home and adapt to the challenges of aging with a brain injury. Because as the person ages, there are some unique aspects of aging with a brain injury that require very, very different uh, skill sets and approaches in terms of uh, helping the person uh, continue their gain that they had in rehabilitation. One of the problems we see is housing, is lack of accessible housing. And as we look at what can be out there, we know that people can end up in nursing homes as their families age out. And are there alternatives in housing that would allow us to uh, create uh, communities within communities for people to um, avoid institutionalization? And I see that potentially occurring in the form of specialized housing, not isolated housing. I don't want to see that occur, but in terms of supports that can come into the community in accessible dwellings and provide services to people. Right. Now, what more would you like to see done by healthcare and social systems for persons living and aging at home with the challenges of serious brain head injuries? And I stress living at home for the reason that you said, that is, people are sent home sooner than ever used to be the case following these things. And therefore, what happens at home, and you've made the point, becomes more and more important. So what should, what do you want to see healthcare and social systems do? Oh, it's a wonderful question, because the first thing I want to talk about is money, when you ask that question. And right now, there are, the studies indicate that there's between 15 and $20 million involved in lifetime care for a person with a severe brain injury. And as you said earlier, this is a type of problem that affects young people as the number one group. The number two group are people over the age of 65 who have injuries through falls. But if we look at it from a young person's perspective, um, 15 to $20 million is an enormous amount of money. And how is that set of financial resources going to reach the person? Is there adequate money? What is your health care insurance pay for? Because a lot of those costs are going to occur way, way beyond the injury. As the person ages, as the person has increased care needs, 
as the person requires care in the community. So how can we create this funding for individuals and then create an access to the non-medical care needs that they have that require enormous financial resources? That may require the uh, politicians and the um, regulation experts to become more creative about how funding can be used and to step outside of things. Uh, In the United States, approximately half the states have what's called a Medicaid waiver program. Uh, Medicaid is where a lot of people with disabilities end up because of their obvious inability to work, uh, their loss of a commercial or private insurance resource. So they become Medicaid recipients or Medicare recipients. And how can we use the dollars that are available outside of traditional health care, in other words, outside of nursing homes? And are those dollars going to be adequate to serve them in the community? I believe that's a movement that is starting in a lot of states and uh, some of them very, very creative problem-solving to get services out to people. Uh, One approach is uh, the money follows the person. So the money tracks along with the person as their care needs change. Now, I'm going to ask you just a supplementary question about that. There's a whole question, too, isn't there, of insurance in the sense that if it's a car accident um, or some kind of accident uh, at work or something of that nature, then there are sorts of insurance systems that will be invoked. How helpful are those in recognizing the challenges that you've you've identified so clearly? Well, they, they certainly differ from case to case and policy to policy. Um, the United States, uh, as, as well as uh, Canada, two countries I'm most familiar with in terms of the work I do, have excellent workers' compensation programs that allows funding to be used over the course of time to the, in the best situation to meet the person's needs, allows money to be used to create housing access, um, vocational retraining, if that's appropriate, physical skills retraining, dealing with some of the mental health or substance abuse problems that may occur. So I've seen those funding sources be very flexible and really work, uh, if they're well used, uh, to the person's long-term benefit. Um, auto insurance, auto automobile accidents are a significant cause of, uh, of brain injury. Some states uh, and some provinces have real limits on medical rehabilitation. Some don't. Ontario province has a very rich program in their auto no-fault that allows for individuals with severe injuries to receive adequate monies, if used appropriately, to carry them for long periods of time for both continuing rehabilitation and for uh, supportive or attendant care. And it's a rich resource for children because children are going to age with a brain injury just like adults. Right. Now, I'm going to ask you the very final question, which is the key question on the, for this particular episode, is, which is this. What is your message for family caregivers caring for family members living and aging with the challenges of serious head or brain injuries? What do you say to them, Rolf, please? You're, do, you're doing the right thing. That's the first thing I would say to them. Uh, if they're caring for their loved one and they're bringing that loved one into their lives to give them the best possible environment. They are absolutely doing the right thing, and they need to be commended for that, and they need to be 
very, very proud of what they're doing because it is definitely the right thing. They need to take care of themselves. They need to take care of their health in all respects. They're physical, they're emotional, they're spiritual, they're financial. They need to do everything they can to keep themselves healthy. Uh, they also need to allow themselves to be taken care of, too, through support groups, through friendships, through other family members. They need to give themselves the luxury of also benefiting from care. They need to remember that their role is very important but shouldn't get in the way of their other family members' relationships, their friendships, and their roles in the community, that they need to live a full life and they need to reach out from the home to enjoy that life. I would focus them on the future. Prepare for the future. What are you going to do when you cannot do your job? Who is going to do your job? Where is that going to occur? How do you want your loved one to be cared for when you're not there to do it or to oversee it? It's very important for them to plan. But to encourage people to continue to live a life in which they achieve satisfaction, that makes them feel good, that gives them joy and pleasure, to recognize when they need help, when they need support. Don't feel it's a sign of weakness. Feel it's something, it's a way of, of getting what you need so you could do your job. Also going to say to people, stay positive. Yeah. Look towards the future. Look towards what you need to keep moving to that future, what your loved one's goals are, and stay as positive as you can. Because the minute you turn to the negative, your health will deteriorate, your ability to be a caregiver will deteriorate, and there'll be problems. It's an enormous job, and it's a balancing act that is very, very difficult, but I've seen people do it with amazing grace and perform without a net. So let's learn from the people who were successful. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that powerful message. Powerful message, encouraging message, a message of the job ahead, but the message of hope. Uh, thanks, Rolf. Well, thank you, Gordon. Uh, I'm going to say a little bit more than just thanks, because what you're doing, your work, is powerfully important for, obviously, families, family caregivers, and for them, family members. But it's also important for the way in which the wider healthcare system, and dare I say it, my, my previous profession, medicine, understands what health, what health implications there are from head injuries and the social implications and the sense that it continues to evolve with age, but also that hope, and you've made this point very clearly, should never be lost because things do improve. So what I want to say to you is for the sake of us all, all every, every success to you and just keep going and if there's any opportunity for me to do another episode on this show with you to highlight some more of the things you're doing please ask me because i'd be very proud to do it well i'd love to do it with you this was a lot of fun for me and hopefully i said some things that meant something to people i'm sure you i'm sure you did i know you did
Now, I also want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. Our next episode will be confidentiality of health information. Please join us. Same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being right.